The first reading can be found on page 740 of the Church Bibles, and it is chapter 53 of the book of Isaiah, on page 740. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took our infirmities and carried, out so carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we were healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offering, his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light. I'm sorry. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils of the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second reading is taken from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, and you can find that on page 1132. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. 
And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Just uh, checking my microphone. That's great, thank you. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for these two powerful passages of your love for us and your blessing in store. We ask that by your Spirit you would open my mouth to speak your word, you would open our ears to hear you, our minds to understand and our hearts to respond to your love. Amen. Now, I don't really understand man flu. I guess that's because I'm a man. However, what I do know is that once in my life, I did suffer something worse than a heavy cold. I was a student at university, and I was lying in my student bed, in my student garret, and I was surrounded by misery and wretchedness, sweating and shivering, and because I'm a man, waiting to die. <laughs> and calling out for my mother. And then through my haze of wretchedness and misery, through that doorway came my mother. <laughs> Suddenly I knew that although the wretchedness and the misery were still all the same, my mother was there, someone who loved me. She would look after me. I would be all right. I don't now remember how that suffering felt, but I do remember how it felt to see my mother arrive when I needed her. Well, we continue our mini-series today on credible clues to a creator God. Last week, we thought about how the appearance of moral order in every culture, despite the uh, urgencies and the, uh, and the instincts of survival of the fittest, how moral order appears in every culture and allows us to build a predictable and positive community, pointing like a, a moral compass towards the magnetic pole of a creator God. We saw that the key question to ask those who don't believe in God are, how do you think we should behave? Do you accept that we have a moral compass? 
And if you do, what does it point to, if not to God? Well, today we're thinking about suffering and how that too can be a credible clue to a creator God. That's a bit of a surprise, isn't it? Usually when we think about suffering, we're on the back foot. It's often the first question that people ask us. How can you believe in a God of love in the face of all this suffering in the world? Sometimes it's asked aggressively or dismissively, but sometimes it's wrung from the pain of personal experience. If that's you, I hope that you will hear in these words today a profound empathy from the Christian faith. We all share the pain of suffering. However the question gets asked, though, the widespread expectation, both from atheists and from Christians, is that this is a rhetorical question. There is, in fact, no answer. It is impossible, actually, to believe in a God uh, like this, in a world like this. What goes unnoticed, however, is that this question hides a completely different question underneath it. A question which the person posing the first question doesn't usually like to think about. And it's this question. So what better answer do you have? Suffering won't go away just because you choose not to believe in God. So how do you endure the idea of suffering without a loving God to give you hope? Post-war German thinker called Moltmann was reflecting on the, the horrors of the Nazi concentration camps and of those who said as a result, I can't believe in a God of love who would create such a horrible world as this. And then he realized that that anger expressed in that, in that statement only made sense if there was a God to be angry with. It would be like saying, I'm so cross with my GP, I don't believe he exists. The anger might be appropriate, but dismissing the existence of the person with whom you're angry seems rather pointless, doesn't it? Moltmann called this protest atheism, not so much disbelief as a shout of pain. Having a, a good shout can be really helpful for us emotionally, can't it? But deciding that those that we're shouting about don't actually exist turns the whole thing into a slightly pointless exercise. As one Christian leader whose son committed suicide said, people ask me if this has destroyed my faith. I'm not sure why. It's not as if those who don't believe in God have a better answer to the pain that I feel. So in a world of pain, what bits of evidence are there for a good creator God? There are three parts to my answer. And the first is the value of suffering. Suffering is important. This confronts the problem of suffering head-on, and it offers pointers to why suffering itself shows evidence of love. Mostly, an atheist wouldn't accept these pointers as being valid, but they reinforce the question that I'm asking. Well, can you give a better reason for the suffering in the world. Now understand that these ideas aren't my own, so they don't rely on my experience of suffering, which isn't that great. They're answers that Christians have 
gathered together, discovered within the anvil of their own suffering over 2,000 years. And between them, billions of Christians have experienced suffering beyond my imagination. So here's the first thought. Suffering arises from freedom of choice. Okay, so my children are playing together. I can supply all their needs. I love them. I've got a great plan for today, which they're going to enjoy. I have something for each of them. And each thing which I give them, they, that person will enjoy more than the things I give to the other people. But blow me down, they still start fighting over nothing at all. I want that. Dad loves you more than me. I hate you. Even if I can create a perfect world where nothing decays, where everyone is happy and, and has what they need, we shall still have suffering unless we take away the choice to react selfishly and hurtfully. But do I value my children more highly by locking them up and taking away the possibility of them making bad choices or by trusting them to choose well? Well, if you're old enough, the film Matrix gave us the answer. We'd all rather be free to fight our own battles and make our own mistakes, wouldn't we? I'm going to have to ask somebody for a, a more recent film, um, just in case you don't remember The Matrix. That we can treat each other in ways that are bad means one of two things. Either this is a world of chance where we have no value, or there's a creator who values us so highly that he allows us to make choices. He allows us to make choices, including bad ones, and therefore to suffer. So suffering is itself possible evidence of a creator who creates independent life which can make its own choices, a good creator. Secondly, suffering allows sacrifice. The argument goes one step further. If we have value by being able to choose, we can also value other people by choosing their good rather than our own. If love is more than just an insignificant magnetic attraction, it's because we can suffer for the sake of the person we love. Nobody suffers in a computer game, and nobody loves either. In the suffering of this broken world, we discover meaning of sacrifice and love, another piece of evidence for a good creator God. Thirdly, suffering shows what's wrong. If this world were perfect, there would be no need for pain. But whilst things are not yet right, pain is a vitally important sign that something needs to change. We don't like being hurt, fine. And we might wish that we never felt any pain, that we were kind of anesthetized to pain. But what would it be like if that were so? That is the whole problem with leprosy, no physical pain. And because there's no pain, there's no urgent physical warning to do something quickly, to pull our hand from the flame, to protect our feet, to dress our wounds. And then we start to lose fingers and toes and, and hands. The pain tells us that something has gone wrong and we need to do something about it. Those who don't feel pain are much worse off. Pain itself is a credible clue to a good creator God who cares for, enough, cares for us enough 
to give us an early warning system when something is wrong so that we can help to put it right. As Paul says, the whole of creation feels pain at the moment because that's a sign that creation is not yet as it should be. And actually, all of these thoughts uh, stem from the fact that we live in a world which is not designed to last forever. And nor were we. I know we all want to, but this isn't the world for it. If it were, we'd either get denser and denser population till there was no room to breathe, or there'd be no children. And I expect we'd get very tired and bored. Think about it after a thousand years. But if this world is just a doorway, but I'm getting ahead of myself here. So given that this world is temporary and does include suffering, given that there is some value to suffering, how do we use suffering? And what does that tell us about a creator God? Firstly, suffering makes us stronger. That's the whole principle of physical exercise, isn't it? Pushing through the pain barrier makes you fitter and more resilient. And as we heard in our second reading from St. Paul, it works with our emotions and our character too. Um, <coughs> suffering um, builds perseverance and perseverance builds character. Secondly, suffering makes us inventive. We work hard and we get creative to make life better for us and for others. How many inventions in the world are there and how many have been made in order to solve problems? Last month, you might have heard, Dr. Stuart Adams died. He was, uh, in the 1960s, a humble boots chemist. And he spent 10 years failing to create pain relief for rheumatoid, rheumatoid arthritis until he invented ibuprofen. Suffering makes us inventive. Suffering also makes us compassionate. Care comes uh, because of the suffering of others. We see that and it moves us. Our hearts are softened, our determination grows to help them or to look after them. We read of someone's plight and we send a donation. We work to make their life better. And suffering also shows how much we care. How much we care. The more we love, the more we're willing to suffer. And equally, the other way around, the more someone suffers for us, the more we know they care for us. The very fact that we feel agony over the death of a child or a spouse or a parent shows that we love them. So suffering makes us stronger, it makes us more inventive, more compassionate, and it shows how much we care. These are all bits of evidence that suffering was part of a plan, that a caring creator God included suffering in his creation for a purpose and not because he's wicked or impotent or non-existent. So let me ask my atheist friend the question again. If suffering contains such an intrinsic value, and if it can be used in such powerful ways, even though it hurts, that it's a credible clue to a creator God, how do you explain suffering in a better way in a world without God? Well, we've heard that suffering might not be pointless, it might have an essential value, and that it can be useful. But does it have an end 
Does it have a, does it have a finish? Is that all that is in store for us, slogging our way through suffering until we're put out of our misery? The Christian faith offers hope for something much more. The transformation of suffering. There are at least six ways that I've thought of, and you may think of more, that the Creator God, through His Son Jesus, transforms our suffering. The first is that He is present with us in our suffering. Let's go back to my first story. You'll remember I said, I don't now remember how the suffering felt, but I do remember how it felt when my mother stepped through that door when I needed her. That's how it is when we meet with Jesus. Through him, God delivers the promise, I am with you in all your suffering. I care about you. You'll remember the angel called Jesus Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Knowing my mum was there changed my small misery. Knowing Jesus is there with us changes all our suffering. Secondly, through his son Jesus, God suffers with us. More than being just being with us, the story of Jesus shows that God actually suffers with us, and that changes things even more. Like a doctor who won't leave a, a plague town, but will go on caring till they too have been infected. Jesus knew that coming amongst us, he too would share our suffering. The powerful prophetic poem of Isaiah, which we heard, is a graphic description of the way that Jesus would suffer. He identified with us so that we could know that he is with us in our pain. I had a friend long ago who suffered excruciating pain. She remarked that although she appreciated all our sympathy, actually in the end, we were all still on the other side of the pain from her. The only person who was inside the pain with her was Jesus. Thirdly, Jesus transforms our suffering by helping us. The experience of those who met Jesus was that he wasn't only with them in their current suffering, but that he could stop or change it. That didn't take away the potential for future suffering, but it showed that Jesus was a healer and that healing was on God's heart. Fourthly, by suffering for us. This is where we get to the exciting bit. Jesus didn't just show he cared enough to be with us, to suffer with us, to want to stop suffering. He took our suffering onto himself. He suffered for us. Isaiah says this over and over again in the, in the, um, in the chapter we heard. He carried our sufferings. He was crushed for our iniquities. He bore the sins of many. He suffered for us to take away our suffering. The climax comes in verse 5. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Nailed to a cross in appalling suffering, Jesus took our sins on himself. As Paul says in our second reading, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
So, God transforms our suffering by being present with us, by suffering with us, by helping us, by suffering for us in order to offer us hope beyond suffering. It's kind that Jesus suffers for us, but only significant if it actually delivers something to us, which it does. And the evidence for that comes from the resurrection after the crucifixion. By rising from the dead, Jesus showed us that death wasn't the final nail in the coffin, as it were. It was a doorway to new life. In his risen body, Jesus demonstrated a world, a new world, beyond the suffering of pain and death. And so, as Paul says, we have hope. And this hope doesn't disappoint us. And more even than that, by turning our suffering into joy. There's one more important thing that Jesus shows us in his resurrection. When the disciples met him, they saw his wounds, the nails through his hands. But he was no longer in pain. In fact, those wounds had become, had become something really wonderful. They had become signs of his life and his joy. Joy. That's a word the disciples use again and again about their experience of life with the risen Lord Jesus. We heard Paul just now. He said, We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But we also rejoice in our sufferings because they remind us that we have hope. And so we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whose sufferings we have now received reconciliation with God. Joy. This isn't what you'd expect from people who are ridiculed and beaten and tortured and killed. But it is what Jesus expected. He told his disciples as he was about to die in agony the following day, you are going to experience shattering pain like a woman in labor. But after that, your grief will turn to joy and nobody will be able to take that joy from you. And so it was. Jesus, risen from death, met them. And they were filled with joy, the disciple writes, when they saw the Lord. Because the power of death was so clearly broken, they could rejoice amidst the temporary, suffering, death-bound world, knowing there's an even better world to come. The last pages of the Bible contain this amazing description of God's new world. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with mankind, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and he will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This creator God is so good that though we experience suffering in this temporary world, 
God gives that suffering value by allowing us the freedom to choose what causes it, by making it the touchstone of loving sacrifice. And he makes that suffering useful by using it as an early warning that all is not yet right and by allowing it to strengthen our character and our compassion to combat it. But most importantly, he transforms that suffering by being beside us and with us in it, by helping us through it. And then by taking it up and bearing it for us to offer us a hope beyond suffering that suffering itself will be turned to joy. The God who can take even crucifixion and turn it into resurrection is a God who can be trusted to take the worst of our sufferings and to transform them. And so we pose the question, how can we believe in a God of love in the face of so much suffering? Well, here is my final question in reply. If suffering contains such intrinsic value and can be useful in such powerful ways, even though it hurts so much, that it becomes a credible clue to a creator God. And if we know that suffering isn't the end of the story, but the same creator God comes to us in our suffering to care for us, to share it with us, to help us in it, and to bear it for us, so as to welcome us to a world where suffering isn't just in the past, but has been transformed into joy. If, because of Jesus, we Christians have hope for eternal joy through and beyond suffering, then how do you explain suffering in a better way that gives you more hope in your world without God? Let's take a moment of silence now. If you were asking yourself that question at the beginning, how can I believe in such a God? And if anything I've said has touched your head here or your heart, why not mention it to God now? We love to pray with you about it afterwards, and I will go and sit in the tent there after the service if you'd like to come and pray with me. But we'll just sit and hold that suffering in a moment of silence now. Alternatively, if you were wondering how to give others an answer to that question about God and suffering, then why don't we pray our theme verse, which is a prayer about suffering as well as joy. Let's pray it out loud together. Lord, help your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to perform signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. Amen.